Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Team Human is an ad-free listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Jahawar Dewan, Brandon Larkin Connolly, RJ Gon Patreon, <laughs> Daniel Reuter, Daniel Tuckett, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work, conversations with great people, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. Our technologies may start out as tools for people, but over time, they can begin using people as tools. Team Human is where we reconnect with others in order to regain autonomy over the environments we have created. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the host of Tech Won't Save Us and author of Road to Nowhere, Silicon Valley critic, Paris Marx. Developing new technologies has helped us as a civilization, as a society, but we also need to recognize that not every new technology is good for us, and that every new, new technology is beneficial, and that we need to be able to assess these technologies on their merits to make sure that they're actually going to serve the public rather than just blindly embracing anything that Uber or Google or whoever says that we should take on. Paris is going to help us see how the future of transportation imagined by our techno-benefactors may be best understood as a collective dead end. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, I'm off and running on doing the publicity for uh, my upcoming book, which I'm sure you've heard about by now, at least for me, Survival of the Richest Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. I mean, 
when you do the book tour thing now, I mean, it used to be like the launch date of the book was when everything started. And now in our, our kind of asynchronous universe, you just do all these podcasts and interviews and radio stuff and the, in the weeks leading up and the, the audio book reading and all that. So the book's really in my, in my head again right now. And the weird thing about it is um, I think maybe as I was writing it, I was kind of worried and concerned about the tech billionaires and their plans to escape and, you know, to leave us behind and go to Mars or Seastead or go to the metaverse or upload their psyche or build a bunker or whatever they're going to do and thinking, ah, oh, isn't this so sad what they did to our beautiful internet and all. But as I read it and read these stories of these guys, you know, coming back from their their first Burning Man experience and now deciding that they they should lead the revolution for climate change or they should come up with the new stack that saves humanity and just the the pathos of it, it's feeling so funny to me. And then I got worried, oh no, this book is funny, but this is so dire. And my book is funny. You know, it's funny to look at a scientist like Richard Dawkins, who's like so staunchly opposed to there being any kind of spiritual reality, any kind of meaning system that emerges between people living in community just to, to ignore two or 300 years of philosophy that, that helps one understand that scientism is just one thread, one important mechanistic thread, which is great for building bridges and rocket ships, but not really good for figuring out why we're here or what we should do or what intimacy is or what happens when when <laughs> when we're when we take care of each other or don't. Um, I realized how how well how small it makes them that that laughing is not a problem. If anything, that's that's now I'm seeing that's the very best thing about the whole project. If people can go into this and and read about, you know, the dangers that these guys pose and the craziness of their mindset and all and then be able to laugh at it, it it relieves us from from any compunction to to pursue their their dead end strategy of trying to win through selfishness and separation through all of this going meta that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. It's not just going meta; it's like metastasizing, right? It's personifying the cancer. I think what what laughter does, I mean, it really is the best medicine, is it helps make them and their pursuit and their technology and their their belief systems, it helps make it look really small. You know, when we laugh, we can see it in perspective. That's almost what, ha, 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 that's what that is. It's the shrinking down. It's the distancing and seeing it. Oh my gosh, that's such a small thing. I can laugh at, I can purge it. It's not a tragedy that I have to purge through catharsis of that kind. It's it's a comedy. This is a, a dark black 
comedy that we're living through. And that is empowering. And then when I realized that, how funny it is and how being able to laugh at these guys and their plans and their money and what they're doing and their technology and their business plans and how easy it is to get sucked into it. I laugh at myself during COVID actually thinking, oh, I should get deliveries or maybe I should have one of those little Amazon doorbells so I can see who's outside. And You know, my listening to my neighbors talk about getting guns and this and being scared of that, you know, or, or taking these guys seriously, taking it seriously. The only way you can go after that, if you believe in these, these, these plans for great resets and rebootings of civilization and moving from game A to game B, the only place you can go is conspiracy theory. The only place you can go is Q, really, with that. If you take these guys at their word, as if they really can reprogram reality any better that they could reprogram a friggin' phone, which they still can't do, and without a, a ton of conflicts and resource forks and God knows what, um, then they can't take care of the world. Of course not. It's ridiculous. It's silly. You know, if you if you don't see it as silly and you see it as serious, then you're going to go down the crazy conspiracy line, which is, you know, fun for a while. But again, and that was fun. You know, I loved conspiracy theory back in the day. It was on, you know, midnight to 5 a.m. on Art Bell, and you could kind of laugh at it and see it as, as interesting thematically, but kind of, you know, it's not real. But what it, what it did in seeing that I could write a comedy and that the entertainment value of it is not just a distraction from the hardship of our reality, but the very point that the entertainment value, being able to get perspective and see it for what it is, frees us up to choose a different course, to be nice to each other and share and do mutual aid and all that great stuff. It made me realize why it's really okay. And you've heard me talk about this for years, why I felt kind of so guilty about wanting to return to the arts and theater and puppets and play and music and psychic TV and all the fun stuff I used to do before I got all serious. Um, That it's really okay, not just okay. It's not just neutral. It's actually, it's the key. It's the key. The arts is what gives us perspective on this. It it can decouple us from the nightmares that we've attached ourselves to and give us that wiggle room we need to say, oh, wait a minute. There are multiple possible realities here. This is not so serious. I mean, it's serious. There's pain on the ground. There's there's conditions on the ground we have to address. But the way to do that is to detach ourselves, unlock ourselves from the morbid fascinations of our economic superiors and rejoin the people. You know, it's like read your Federico Garcia Lorca, his his fascination with the people, the folk, the 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 dancing in the streets that's where you find it that's where we find our power in the 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 wet squishy loving artsy craziness of being a real human so um reading my book and laughing at these guys has been very healing for me and and I hope it is um for you too you know it's not AI that's going to go meta on these guys who are so busy going meta on everything else. It's we who are going to go meta on them. And the best way to go meta on these guys is to be able to laugh, see them from the perspective of the comedy that they're that they're uh, trapped in and uh, 
and find ways, uh, our own exit strategies from that story uh, with just a big bad ending. And let's rewrite one that has a much longer plot, an infinite second act of fun. All right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Delighted to introduce you to Paris Marx. If you don't already know him, he's the host of Tech Won't Save Us, and he's been a clear-headed critic of technology for a few years now, willing to challenge many of the underlying assumptions associated with transitioning our entire energy and transportation infrastructure to so-called green alternatives. Sometimes, yes, the answer is just to drive around less. He's the author of the new book, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, which I'm happy to platform on this show. Here's Paris Marks. So hi Paris, thanks for doing this. I really I appreciate it, and I appreciate your book too. Your is this your first or not? Yeah, my first book. It yep. is Mazel Tov. Um, Thank you. It's 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 quite good, um, and that's that's sounds so random. See what <laughs> what I appreciate is um, I I tend to write these books like I get the idea, but then it's kind of about everything. And yeah. so like my book, you know, survival of the richest, it includes some about, you know, uh, Tesla and cars and Musk and whatever. But this is a book that uses electric cars and the future of transportation as a lens on capitalism, development, ego, climate change. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And it lets you tell this story in a way that you just don't get it otherwise, you know. It's not a book about something. It's it's a book. You know what I mean? It's, it uses that about. It's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a subject to get us to a whole predicate, which is just lovely and so rarely. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so rarely done, and then when it is, it's not done well. Thank you. And, yeah, and you did. forgive me for not interrupting you as you compliment <laughs> me. I, I just like to sit here and listen to it. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but here I'm just <laughs> gushing. But so there's so much I want to talk about. But to start, just at, understand that I understand that we're talking about everything, even if we use, you know, the metaphor. It's like, you know, there's a, there was once a book I read somewhere about Barbie, and it wasn't about Barbie. It was about women, you know, and yep. girls and role models. And But it's so hard to do. 
One thing I felt guilty about when I reread my own book for the audiobook was how hard I was on the kind of renewables industry overall and electronic cars and Tesla in particular. But then reading your book, I felt less guilty about it. <laughs> Not that it's all... You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Exactly. Thank you. Not that it's all bullshit, but I've got so many friends who are busy trading in their perfectly good cars to buy Teslas because they think that's better for the world. Why, in your estimation, and I know this isn't getting deeply into the book, but just as an issue, why is that a problem, most simply? (laughs) One thing I always like to say like when having this conversation, right, is that I'm not anti-EV because I think it can come off that way. And I've had some questions about the book that kind of assume that. Mm -hmm. But I still think that you know, electric cars still have an important role to play in reducing the, you know, climate impact of the transportation system, right? When you look at the life cycle emissions of these vehicles, they tend to be less than an internal combustion vehicle. But then, you know, kind of the question that you're asking is, you know, if you have a perfectly good car, should you go and replace it with an electric car before, you know, if its life cycle is over? And I guess that that's a calculation that depends on the vehicle and the, the change that is happening. But I don't think it's always the best choice just to get rid of a perfectly good vehicle in order to buy a new one. And there are a lot of, I guess, considerations that that go into it. I think when it comes to electric cars, you know, I have a couple concerns, right? The first is that especially in North America, where we are, you know, the focus seems to be very much on how we are going to solve the climate problem when it comes to transportation, reduce transport emissions, is just replace every internal combustion vehicle with an electric car. And that's going to get us there, right? And, you know, our politicians and industry (laughs) leaders, yeah, exactly, say like, you know, these are zero emissions because there's no tailpipe emissions. But that's, that's not true, right? There, there is still emissions, um, whether it's the power that charges the car. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of like right wing arguments that say, oh, if the car is powered by coal, then it's worse than a fossil fuel car. And that's not true. Um, Let's just say that quite clearly. But in order to produce the battery, there's still an environmental impact that comes of that. Like when you look at the electric car and the life cycle emissions, an internal combustion vehicle, most of its life cycle emissions come from driving it, right? Whereas the electric car, most of that comes from production, from the battery, you know, depending on how much you drive, how, how you power it, all those sorts of things. And so the real benefit of the car is if you're going to drive it a lot, right? If you're going to replace a Toyota Corolla with an electric car and just drive it into the ground, whereas if you buy like an electric or a luxury car that's an electric vehicle, like some of these higher priced Teslas and don't drive it very much, you're not really getting the environmental benefit because you're not replacing all these miles driven. And then the other piece of this is really all of the extraction that goes into making these batteries for the cars, right? All of the mining that is going to have to be done. And the International Energy Agency estimates that like demand for lithium is going to go up by over 4,100% if we make this transition that's really focused on electric vehicles mm-hmm. rather than transit. Cobalt more than 2,100%. We know the impacts of cobalt over in the Democratic Republic of the Congo are just horrible. And so thinking about that expanding much more is just terrible to, to even believe. And so, you know, we know the impacts of fossil fuels and what comes through that system. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a conscious effort to downplay 
the kind of environmental impacts, the community impacts, the health impacts that come of the electric car and its supply chains in order to present that as the future because a lot of companies are going to benefit immensely from that transition when the real focus should be, yes, let's electrify the cars where we can, but especially in cities and urban areas, we should be trying to get as many people out of cars as possible because that's going to give us a much better you know, emissions reduction and things like that. Right. Long story short, the total carbon output of a car is not just from driving it from one place to another. It's from making it and then getting rid of it at the end. What are you going to do with this giant hunk of metal, lithium, silicon, you know, molybdenum, and God knows what, you know, you see the (laughs) the people, you know, picking on, you know, looking for for renewable parts on a you know, giant junk heap in Brazil somewhere. It's like, ah, that's not, that's really a a life no better than the kids in the Congo getting the, getting your cobalt out of it. Totally. So yeah, so there's, there's that aspect of it. And then there's also the idea that even if we don't care so much about that to transition, like if we decided, you know, if we got the best, most Al Gore inconvenient truth person to be president (laughs) and Congress and say, okay, America, we're going to pass the bill. Total transformation of our energy grid, all cars to electric by 2040, all electricity to solar by 2030, right? The amount of stuff that you got to do and dig the amount of energy that requires, that would just blow it right there, right? That would just end. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I feel like there's not much like we, we talk about renewables and electric cars and all this this stuff, and we don't think about the broader impacts of those, right? The supply chains, where all the minerals come from. And and that's such a core piece of it, especially, you know, if we're at a moment when we're thinking about, you know, the impacts of the systems that we have built, right, over the course of many decades, um, and whether those are inherently sustainable, whether they are producing the kind of impacts that we want to see in the world, you know, right now, obviously, we live in this world system that is that where the global north depends immensely on extraction from and exploitation of the global south, right? And so, you know, are we going to just kind of swap that system where we're taking, you know, fossil fuels and, you know, resources and other things from the global south and just say, okay, we're going to take less fossil fuels from them now, but we're going to significantly increase the mining that happens there. And they're still going to be subject to these really kind of neo-imperial, neo-colonial relationships. And we're not going to change that because this is what works for us up here in the global north. And, you know, the climate crisis and these other crises that we face really offer us an opportunity to rethink those fundamental relationships. And it would be just so terrible to see that opportunity missed um, because all we want to do is like, you know, do the transition that requires the least change possible, because that's going to benefit the interests of capital, right? Right. But I feel like people are, and I mean, myself included, any of us, we're, we're really slow or even incapable of recognizing things we've accepted as kind of conditions of life and nature when they're actually constructed. So, I mean, I think about uh, Neil Postman and Technopoly, you know, when he talks about how, you know, first we get a tool to help us do something, then we kind of adjust our lives around the tool, and then we live 
in a world defined by the tool. So the automobile is a great one. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a road to nowhere reality that we, we made this, we made cars. Oh, cool. We're not going to need horses. We're going to go faster. Oh, no, there's jaywalking. We're going to have to build streets. We're going to have to sort of redesign things. And then it's like, oh, we got these huge, powerful car companies. Let's create the suburbs so that people have to buy cars in order to get to work. Then I talk to my neighbor about, look, cars suck. You don't, I gotta go to work, right? It's like, yeah, but why do you need a car to go to work? Because someone designed your town. So unwinding that is tricky, but it feels like, you know, when we're talking about cars, the only real solution to automobile pollution, you know, it, it, certainly in the short term, but probably in the medium and long term too, is wait a minute, cars are kind of dumb, right? Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, you know, I feel like you can talk to a lot of people these days. And even if they, you know, have that kind of just, I live in the suburb, we get around with the cars, this is how it is. I don't really know anything else. Like, you know, why are you trying to change this on me? I think a lot of those people will still recognize like, but I'm stuck in traffic all the time and I hate this and like this isn't working for me or I need to spend a ton of money on my car and it's really costing me, especially as cost of living is is going up and my wages are not. And so I think that there's many reasons to like think twice about the car, even if you're just not thinking about the environmental impact of it or the supply chains and, and things like that. Right. And if you're thinking and, you know, as you were saying there, like around how this was normalized for people, right, how this became something that was normalized, that for generations we've just said, oh, everyone is driving a car, everyone's living in the suburb, this is how it is, we should get used to this. Like, that was a really concerted effort. You know, yeah. Peter Norton, the historian, talks about how there was not just a physical reconstruction of the street and of the city, but also a social reconstruction to change the way that we thought about the, the street and the city and how we're supposed to live in it. And so, you know, then if you think about how to change these things now, it's like in some ways we need to go back and see what happened before to learn mm. from how that process happened in order to change it now, in order to start to unwind what yep. has been created. And that's both, you know, getting people to think differently about the streets, but also, I guess, creating a, a movement, creating power in order to challenge the kind of entrenched industry that that made things the way that they are, and really to get the government to start to change policy, because ultimately that's how you get the physical changes that start to introduce people to how things can be different. You know, unfortunately, it's not just like one silver bullet thing that you can change and then everything is no. going to be better. It's a lot of work. And it was a hard, <laughs> it was a hard sell. I mean, that was a lot yeah. of my work. And it, I did this book, Life Inc., a long time ago when I was looking at how did this happen? And I was looking, you know, there were all these meetings, but with the like, National Association of Manufacturers and the car industry saying, all right, Joe works in a factory all day and he gets on a streetcar, he drinks a beer, and reads the paper with his friends in order to get home. How do we get him to not like that? How do we get him <laughs> to say, oh no, I would rather continue to operate heavy machinery for another hour, right? And have to work a whole day each week just to pay for that machine and be at risk of hurting pedestrians and need insurance and stress out. How are we going to convince people to do that? And then you look and they needed to call on racism, right? Because it was the way the world worked. Absolutely. Was white, white people lived in the city and the black people lived out in the suburbs. So it was like, oh no, we got to flip that. All right, let's get black people back in the city and convince white people to go out to the suburbs where they're going to have these colonial estates. This was decades of propaganda and advertising and social manufacturing of, of social consent and desire for stuff that was ultimately 
less fun, less good, less everything. Um, so what? how do we undo that? You know, you look at Elon Musk, who was very good at making electric cars sexy, right? Everyone thought that they were not masculine. Yep. So he made that kind of cool and macho. Not that it really helps that much, but what, what do you see as sort of the, what story do we start to tell people to make them kind of like the world that doesn't have all this car stuff yeah it just just on your elon <laughs> musk point for a second there like I, I think it's fascinating even if you go back to like the early 1900s right when there's a competition between the electric vehicle and the internal combustion vehicle the electric vehicle is even then framed as more feminine right than the masculine internal combustion vehicle mm -hmm. that you, where you can adjust the gears and all this kind uh, of stuff and you need to fix it and all this right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um and, and so you know it's fascinating to see that conversation a whole like century later as you know this this transition is kind of gearing up right but yeah you know if we're talking about how to change those minds you know as as i was saying like i think it is difficult and i think that part of it is to try to wield some of the strategies that the auto industry wielded to get people to accept these, you know, this this kind of worse way of life, really, in many ways, in order to get people to to buy into it. You know, I think that it was it was really interesting during the pandemic, right? When we had these moments where cities were closing streets in order to give people, you know, more room, right? To say, mm -hmm. look, things can work differently. And then, you know, after the initial stages, like after the first lockdown and, and a bit after that, like very quickly, there was a pushback from, you know, automotive organizations from the auto industry to say, open those roads back up to cars. Like this cannot stay like this forever. Yeah. <laughs> people cannot get used to this, right? <laughs> right. And Five or six years in, you're going to have people are going to not let you go back. Exactly. It, it has to be an exception, not the rule, right? You can't let it stick around. And so I think that's really fascinating. But then if you look at, there have been aspects of that that have stuck around, right? If you look at Paris, for example, they've really been able to entrench the cycling that people took up during the pandemic, in part because they had a city government that had been slowly working on these things for two decades. And then there was a unique opportunity to really seize on to expand it quickly. You know, in Montreal as well, there's been an expansion of the cycling network mm -hmm. to get more people onto their bikes. And so, you know, when those opportunities can be taken, I think that's really important to show people how it can be different. But as you're saying, like, I think that there's a lot of pieces to this. And I think that, you know, there are many challenges that come along with it in terms of getting governments to actually get behind transit funding in order to invest in these infrastructures, in order to, you know, tell their citizens that things can work differently. And another problem with that is that, you know, there is so much car dependence and there is so much normalization of the car. And the auto industry is still very influential, very powerful, that they do have the ability to, to push back on these things, even when there's more and more, I guess, dissenting information or information about how these things are harming us or not good for us. But they still have a lot of like uh, influence in order to make people think differently or, or to ensure that these changes don't happen. And that's part of the reason why all this focus is on the electric car and using that as the transition rather than questioning whether we should be so reliant on the car altogether, right? There's there's a lot of industry interest from the automakers, but also the mining industry to ensure that that is the future of our transition and you know, not getting people out of cars altogether and reducing resource use. 
Right. Well, and then, you know, the the environmentally minded venture capitalist will invest in the cobalt and the lithium and the and all yeah. the mining thinking that he's doing good. Don't worry, honey. You could just sit on your iPad and go to your Rudolf Steiner school. It's all good. And daddy's making the world greener and better, <laughs> you know. But you wonder, like when you go and you speak to the people at Uber and all, and, and I get the argument they're making is with Uber, you can have you don't have to own a car. You get more travel, less man, less mass transit, less energy. It's all good, right? And do the people at Uber believe that, or do they see, do they see what's actually going on? And maybe, maybe you should share what is actually going on. I mean, Uber makes it worse, not better, so far, right? More people take cars instead of mass transit. It's more energy is expended, not less. Exactly. Yeah. The early promises were that Uber was going to reduce, um, you know, car ownership, was going to make transportation more accessible for people, was going to be complementary with the transport system. You know, all these reduced traffic, of course, all these supposed benefits. And what, you know, academics and transit agencies who have studied this have found was that, you know, Uber did very little of those things. It made little difference to car ownership, a very small decline. It tended to take people from transit, not to, you know, become complementary toward it. It tended to serve young college educated people with above average incomes in cities, not so much the people who, you know, were lacking transportation options, who were waiting for the bus, uh, you know, for, for a really long time, those sorts of people. And, you know, the trips that Uber tended to facilitate had a higher emissions profile than if people had got around in the way that they were getting around before. And so it didn't deliver these benefits that were promised. In terms of the Uber workers, you know, thinking about the people in the headquarters, not the people driving around right. in the cars who are being quite clearly exploited by Uber. And of course, that's another piece I didn't mention is that, you know, Uber's real role was not only to deregulate the taxi industry, but in recent years, it's launched a real campaign in order to roll back workers' rights to rewrite uh, worker classifications that will be harmful even beyond you know, the taxi industry and ride hailing and whatever you want to call it. But if, but if we think about the people in the headquarters, you know, I, I wouldn't want to guess at what they think themselves. Like, I think it's quite clear that a lot of them bought into the mission and the idea early on because there was a lot of excitement around it. And certainly that was echoed in, you know, media reporting on the company. I think it was easy to be excited early on because it did seem like you were having this transformative effect. But then, of course, you know, we started to hear the stories about, sure, that was great for some people in the company, but it was also really terrible for a lot of other people, including, you know, women, um, black people who were, you know, treated who were discriminated against at the company and so i'm sure they weren't completely buying into what it was selling um and now you know are people still believing the sorts of things that uber is is selling i i don't really know i guess you do wonder how many people are there because they believe in the vision and how many people are there because they need a good job yeah and i guess you know when i see people using uber it's almost like the same as the guy with the car next door. Like, you got to eat. You know, ah, I got to get home from the airport. Exactly. What, you, what am I going to do? You know, I'm just one person. But that I'm just one person thing. It's interesting. You had a similar reaction to an inconvenient truth that I did. And most everyone I know, particularly environmentalists, love it. And they go, Al Gore, thank God. He helped make this thing public. But inconvenient truth has a bunch of problems with it. I mean, one, it's basically a TED talk, you know, yeah. <laughs> as, as if there is a solution. But it all comes around 
to the sense that we are personally, individually responsible for fixing this shit. Like, you're going to be your choice. So I'm just going to, inconvenient truth means I, Douglas, have to sit up. I can't sleep at night because I'm worried about the fact that everything I use and the way I live is contributing to all this harm. But what are the, the high leverage points through which I can make other choices and still work. And I'm in the privileged elite who gets to work on computers and stuff. And I try, I've got a, you know, 2014 MacBook Pro. I'm desperately trying to hang on, even though it's after its service thing. And it's me that's going to buy the new computer and kill babies, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I hear you. And like, I, I completely agree, right? Because the message of inconvenient truth is like, look at all of this climate change, all these terrible things that are happening around the world. Now make sure you change your light bulbs to LEDs and, you know, make these other small changes in your life, right? And really, when we're thinking about it, like certainly, yes, people should be doing some of those things, right? It's not to say don't yeah. do anything, don't care, don't recycle and all this sort of stuff. Like, yeah, you know, if you can do those things, you absolutely should. But at the same time, thinking that us making those individual choices is what's going to solve the climate crisis is just not a reflection right. of reality. Right. right, exactly. It's almost like it's like telling me to bring my plastic water bottle to a recycling bin. It's like, I shouldn't be drinking water out of a plastic bottle. Exactly. I shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have yeah. to be. <laughs> no, and they always, uh, plastic water bottles like drive me crazy. I could go on and on about it. And just this idea that, like, of plastic recycling in general, which is right. a, a bit of a scam in, in right. a or sense. Right. We made it out of corn. It's yeah. corn plastic. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. It's like, look yeah. at the factory where they're making the corn plastic. There's a lot of smoke coming out of that yeah. place anyway. It's like. So it's better than oil? I don't know. It's ruining the topsoil? I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure. We need to plasticize my bottle. My my ah or then, yeah. they, then the other people, then, I, then they mean well. I see them with the cloth bags going to the grocery store with those or with the plastic bags from Fresh Direct. And it's like, well, how many little plastic bags does it take to make one big plastic bag one reusable plastic and if you use it what 30,000 times you've made up for the <laughs> for the energy <laughs> no so, it, it's interesting here as well I, i'm sure it's the same where you are like they've banned plastic bags and then the ones that replaced the banned plastic bags the individual use ones were plastic bags that are supposed to be reusable and now people just own a ton of those reusable plastic bags instead right yeah and i don't know maybe there's some benefit there but i feel like it should have been you know, at least, at, at least, you know, pushing um, the cloth bags and things right. like that, which are a bit better. But I, you know, I think to get back to your core point, like when we think about what's necessary to solve climate change, um, and certainly the book gets to this in looking at the transportation sector, is it's these really structural systems, right, right. that have been developed over time that are what really need to shift in order to as you say, enable us to make different decisions, but also encourage us to get around in different ways or consume in different ways or live in different ways. And that's not something that can just be done through individual choice, but, you know, requires changes at a level higher than the individual from the government level um, in order to start to change these systems that have been developed and put in place, you know, by policy over the course of many decades. And that takes work. And I think what we see is that obviously a lot of industry does not want to see those changes happen. But as a result, and, and you know, because 
we have this political system or these political systems, if we're talking about Canada and the US that are so unwilling or, or don't have the desire to make these really big changes to make bold, to take bold action to address these problems. There's a real desire when we think about climate change to really tweak at the edges, see what the minimum we can get away with is, uh, and not actually, you know, try to make these structural changes that are necessary. But, you know, when I talk to my, for my book, the, the well-meaning tech bros who go to the Amazon or to Burning Man and do a little too much acid and see the error of their ways, they come <laughs> back, you know, with a stack, right? A programming stack for an, an eco-village gated autonomous vehicle greenwashed urban utopia you know with no pedestrians and perfect you know autonomously controlled you know carriages and and spontaneous you know vertical farmed hydroponic blah blah and it's like as if it's like the a California ideological wet dream of techno solutionist drivel. <laughs> I mean, right? So these are big solutions. They're going to redo the way we do everything, but in a way that almost exacerbates the the disempowerment and infantilization that that we're struggling with already. Absolutely. It's let's ignore everything that currently exists the the reason why everything is at it as it is and think that we're just going to like opt out and build our new community in you know the middle of the desert or in el salvador Reboot. or honduras they or have it wherever in else, the desert right? there's one yeah. in saudi arabia it's like neom this yeah. city they want to build it's got entertainment and religion and economy and blockchain and recyclable everything and it's like really it's like it's like biosphere or something it's not yeah well and you know it's it's interesting because these projects have been tried in like many different countries right like over in dubai they were doing mazdar which was going to be the city the green city of the future that was going to have no cars inside of it and all this wonderful stuff and like i don't know over a decade later you know very few people live there you know, it was supposed to be car free, but now like the only way to get around inside of it is with a car or and even to get to it, there's no way to get to it without a car. Like and there are many other countries that have yeah. tried these things because building these new cities was very much like a, a project to attract attract foreign capital. Right. right. And, and of course, they wanted to show many of these these countries that they were tech savvy, that they were you know oriented toward the future. And in the places where they made any progress at all, the cities themselves were like super expensive focused toward the elite and people you know from outside the countries and didn't provide the actual benefits and I, I think a really interesting one you know not to talk about countries elsewhere in the world but you know when Google tried to touch down in Toronto right and take yeah. over a piece of the city and say look we have this incredible idea for this car-free utopia and the, the resident said like no we're not letting you do that we're not letting you touch down in our city, try to determine or try to define what our city should be. And really the goal that that Google had there, or Sidewalk Labs, you know, a division of, of Google, was to entrench itself in this small little area of the city. But then because the city would become reliant on its technologies, it would slowly spread out into the rest of the city and become dependent on those, right? That's just not the way it right. works or not the way it should work. It's Google doxing the world, right? Totally, <laughs> you, know, <yeah. laughs> like, you know, or like Google Classroom. It's like, oh, we'll give you this one free thing. Try that. And we're going to slowly spread until we, we run your <laughs> institution. I think people saw 
saw that, they kind of, uh, at least they in- intuited the problem with that. But the interesting thing is when you look at like Google's rhetoric and the rhetoric of really of many of the technologists who think they're urban planners all of a sudden, they'll quote like Jane Jacobs, your great, I think she was Canadian. Yeah. Uh, American, uh, uh, but moved to Canadian, uh, uh, moved to Canada, uh, I believe. Moved to yeah. Canada. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they'll quote her as if they think that their mixed use vision of a city is what Jane Jacobs was talking about, or that Jane Jacobs was talking about some kind of a libertarian free-for-all that creates a city. And it's like, no, what Jane Jacobs was looking at was that a neighborhood that develops kind of naturally over a period of a hundred years is going to have all these kind of nooks and crannies and different uses and things and Rube Goldberg-like, you know, contraptions yeah. <laughs> that, that people get along that's going to make it alive and spontaneous and strange. You don't come to a forest and clear cut it with an architectural rendering and build a mixed use thing, you're going to end up with a shopping mall that has residences on top of the stores, which is, you know, and call that new urbanism. It's this overplanned, hubristic understanding of the world that I feel like that is the road to nowhere that you're talking about. There is no there there, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and like these cities, these visions for these cities, they're completely sanitized. Like, sure, they talk about how they're going to enable all this community and blah, 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 what have you. But when you actually look at like what they're proposing, it's a very sanitized idea of what a community should be. And certainly if they were ever realized, you would see that, you know, it wouldn't work out as they planned. Again, you know, Songdo in South Korea is another one supposed to be the amazing smart city. And now people who live there say like it's dead and and just feels like empty all the time, right? It always is. Disney Celebration yeah. was that way. Yeah. Roosevelt Island in New York was that way. It does. It just doesn't happen like that. Exactly, exactly. And a serious problem because these companies, they do have enormous influence, right? Whether we like it or not. And when they say things, when they put the, they put these ideas out into the world, they can influence a lot of people into believing that this is what we should be striving toward, whether it's on smart cities, whether it's transportation and the various you know terrible ideas that they've had for that. A lot of people will buy into it because a lot of people want to believe that, you know, as we create these new technologies, we integrate them into our cities, that's progress, naturally they make things better. And, you know, one of the things that we need to recognize, and one of the things that I try to make clear in the book is that, yeah, we do need new technologies in order to to improve society over the course of a century and even longer, like, you know, developing new technologies has helped us as a civilization, as a society. But we also need to recognize that not every new technology is good for us, and that every new, new technology is beneficial, and that we need to be able to assess these technologies on their merits to make sure that they're actually going to serve the public rather than just blindly embracing anything that Uber or Google or whoever says that we should take on. Because that doesn't always help us. And I think that especially over the past decade, we can see many examples of that. I know it's funny. The typical response to say too much traffic over the bridge is let's get public funding to open another lane on the bridge, make the bridge yeah. wider, you know, which is what you're actually just encouraging more traffic, you know, where you, you would think, I know it's counterintuitive, but what if the answer to too much traffic on the bridge is to take away a lane? <laughs> in other words, it's like yeah. right go some go another way or find another way to get there i mean so so it's a matter of you know i talk to nate hoggins a lot i don't know if you've been on on his 
show you really should because you're you're he's a very uh, a smart uh, climate thinker amongst other things but he's convinced me that really the only way through is degrowth is Mm -hmm. is less and i know like cory doctor and a whole bunch of people have written me say no don't talk about degrowth because it's so (laughs) denial you know you're talking about asking people to deny themselves their pleasure and all that but i'm like for me as a middle or upper middle class person degrowth Sounds like utopia. I mean, I could do less. I could sit around, just play cards, have sex, talk to people, walk around, work less, uh, consume less. I don't need a 60-inch TV. I'm fine with 19 inches. I was fine with 12. I mean, really. <laughs> I, I don't, look at TV on my laptop. I don't even need a TV. It's like less, less. The less I have, the happier I am. But I think it was you that said, you know, that maybe we can we can kind of reframe this degrowth as kind of a public abundance. Was that your term? Aaron, I can't remember his surname, but it, it is in the book and I and I quoted yeah. him. But yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? Like I I tend not to like call myself a, a degrowther just because it it's a very I think it's a controversial yeah. term, right? Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's also problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's misunderstood as well, right? Because I think it's easy to hear the term and to think, oh, we just need to take everything away and and reduce everything. And that's kind of the goal of it. But actually, I feel like at least in the the kind of people who do advocate this, who I have spoken to, that it's much more nuanced than that, right? It's about recognizing that, especially on the upper end, we do consume too much and that there are ways that we can restructure our society in ways that require less consumption, less work, and what have you that I think would really be better off for a lot of us while recognizing that there are other parts of the world that do need to continue to grow, that do need to improve their standards of living. And it's not about denying them of that, but rather recognizing the degree to which that we've kind of overshot it in our overuse of fossil fuels in the global north. Like, you know, if we think about all of the consumption that we do, is that really making us happier, making us better? Or is that really just like kind of filling a void that exists because of the society that we've created? And, you know, if we if we moved away from everyone owning their own automobile, for example, to get back to transportation and, you know, had a society where our communities were denser, where the services that we needed were closer together, where there was a good public transportation system where you could cycle to get around, it would require less consumption because everyone wouldn't have to own their own car and have to get insurance and buy gas and get maintenance and all of these other things. And it would also require less work to maintain, right? You'd have fewer cars and vehicles that would need to be created, less energy that would need to go into powering the society. So I think that there's a lot of benefits to to questioning that, right? Like one of the things that some people would say is that we always need growth. We need growth to continue, but growth is very much a concept that comes from post-World War II, right? That, That was embraced in that period. And so treating it as though it's something that we, we must have, that's the only way for society to move forward because it's been like that for, what, 80 years or something, I'm not completely convinced. Yeah, and it's going to be hard. It's hard for people to unwind their expectations. And that's why, I mean, I'm thinking we need a kind of a, of a propaganda campaign that projects the happiest, wealthiest, most successful lifestyle as something other than it looks like today. It's not about becoming Jeff Bezos and having not just a yacht, but a second yacht that services the first yacht that travels around behind it. Yeah, you know, it's like that. If that's success, 
we're fucked, right? No, exactly. success has to look like something else. It has to look more like, you know, I always use the example of like, a, you know, the, the, the European city at night with the people sitting outside talking, eating ices and playing cards. That's success. I mean, it's that rosebud, you know, that's, we, we know it. We know it in our heart of hearts, but it's really hard. And, and the other problem, and this is what I found with, you know, my billionaires is there's this, this, deep fear of other people. There's a, 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 a real longing to isolate and insulate ourselves from the others, from the masses. You know, you just look at, you know, Stanford is almost a walled community at this point with, with, with tent. I mean, these are the smartest people in the world and they've got tent cities all around their campus. What something's wrong, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And like you see it, time and time again, right? And it's part of the problem when you have people who have this like experience of the world, this idea of how the world should work, and they're the ones who are dreaming up our futures and, you know, supposedly coming up with the things that are going to define the future of our cities and our transportation systems. Like, I think this really much, this defines a lot of Elon Musk's ideas around transportation as well, right? The idea that he wants to remain separate from the public within his car, increasingly larger cars like Cybertrucks that are bulletproof and dent-proof and all these sorts of things as well and then biohazard proof yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and they retreat to their like gated communities where you know they can have their renewable energy and and battery powered of their communities where if anything did happen they could very easily seal themselves off from everyone else i mean that's really what my book's about they get to seal themselves off they almost are looking forward to the apocalypse because then they have an excuse to bubble (laughs) up the way they've been preparing you know for all these years Yeah, no, uh, I completely agree with you, right? And I I think that that's part of the reason. Like, my argument about Elon Musk is that a lot of his contributions to transportation over the past decade or so have really been to entrench the automobile and to try to stifle efforts to move us away from car dependence, right? Um, Because certainly, yes, because he is an automaker and and has Tesla, but even more than that, because there is this view that he holds, that many of these wealthy people hold, that they want to be separate from everyone else, that they don't want to be close to everyone. And then that gets kind of laundered through his ideas of how society should work and projected onto the rest of us. Um, you know, Jarrett Walker, a, a transport consultant, transport planner, who I quote in the book, calls this elite projection, these ideas of this elite that get projected on the rest of us, that get pushed onto the rest of us. And so you can see the boring company or autonomous vehicles as efforts to stifle efforts for better transit and and improving the transit systems because one of the arguments is that, oh, it will be obsolete in the future because these are the ways that will solve traffic and the other problems of automobility if we just have these new technologies or, you know, we'll have a hyper loop. So don't build the high speed rail now because it'll be ready in a decade and it'll be better than anything ever and way cheaper. So why would you waste your money on this? Right. And so it's just time and time again to try to say, you know, question what people are telling you around improving transportation now because we can improve transportation even more in the future. But in the meantime, you know, you'll still be dependent on your automobile. And that serves me in the kind of society that I want us to have. Yeah, it's like I I always think with automobiles, like my first sort of anchored thinking impression of automobiles was reading um, Great Gatsby, yeah. where, you know, the the plot at the end hinges on they run over a, a, this woman, this, this relatively poor woman who he's, one of them's been having this affair with. And it's like, 
oh, the rich just like, the rich, they just ran her over and got away with it. You know, it's like that. (laughs) And I feel like the automobile in that sense, as the American dream, it just ran us over. It was like the, it's like the ultimate symbol of this um, elitist, high-flying hubris of the kind of white American, you know, techno-monopolist, visionary, projector dude. And it's so hard to unwind it because it's so enmeshed with knights in shining armor and cowboys and Americanism and individuality. You know, it's a heavy lift to talk about any of this in the public sphere without you know, the whole sort of red state rage at, oh, you're taking away my individual personal rights and all those kinds of things. So I'm not particularly hopeful about people gently and voluntarily surrendering their connection to these things. And that's really what I wanted to get to with you. It's like, do you, are you experiencing hope for the future, do you see us being able to articulate a a narrative of transition, a theory of change that people are kind of happy with and can participate willfully towards towards this more publicly, happily publicly engaged reality? I think it's difficult, right? I and I would say certainly there are moments where it's harder to remain hopeful and to like, you know, keep that going. And I think, I think in particular, like after say Bernie 2020 in particular, and not to say that like electoralism is going to save us always and, and sort of like this, but it did seem like a moment where if things were, were going to happen, that was it. And I, I do think that the Bernie campaign and the focus that especially people on the left had on on Bernie Sanders did take away from a lot of, you know, other forms of organizing that could have been happening and that maybe would have been more successful in 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 pushing, you know, other politicians at different levels to be to be doing things. And, you know, certainly that capacity needs to be built and rebuilt now and re-engaged um, in order to try to have these you know, these visions of the future that actually do benefit people that actually do take on the issues that we need dealt with to, you know, really be moved forward, or at least, you know, present the possibility that they could be in any meaningful way. And I would say that, you know, I feel like there's no choice other than to like be hopeful or like to try to maintain some degree of hope, because if that's lost, like, what else is there, right? And so I feel like, yeah, it, it's difficult to remain hopeful sometimes, seeing the reality of the world that we live in, um, you know, seeing the erosion of democracy, seeing, as you're saying, how car culture is becoming increasingly a culture war issue that's being deployed by the right. So every time you, you know, challenge car culture or car dependency, that people jump on you and, and say you're stealing my freedom and stuff like that. And certainly, you know, to see how we are approaching climate change and the the solutions that are being pushed and how market oriented and capitalist they are and how they don't actually address the core of the problem. Yeah, there are a lot of issues there, you know, with the pandemics that just seem to keep escalating, it seems. Um, but I still have to remain hopeful that things can get better and that we can, you know, try to push better futures and, and better policies because I don't think I have a choice not to be. Right. I mean, I was just thinking the other day about how it's really hard to wake people up into a nightmare 
they're not going to want to wake up into that. It's like, yeah. wake up, wake up. The world is burning. It's like, <laughs> so instead I was thinking, you know, rather than saying, wake up, there's a flood. You could say, hey, wake up. We're stacking sandbags over there. It's fun, you know, and so they do not worry. It's not the flood is not the is not the focus. It's the stacking. That's the focus and why that's fun. And it's going to help us all. It's tricky, though, especially when, you know, people like us are filled with such a sense of urgency to be kind of happily task, happily task oriented. I mean, you're you're other than the book, you do a whole bunch of stuff right? you're doing. You do a podcast also, yeah. now, right? Yeah, I host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us that, you know, interviews academics and experts and journalists and workers and, you know, other activists, I guess, about tech issues to try to present a critical perspective on the tech industry, right? You know, we've had, you know, quite a long time where we were kind of absorbed with this techno-optimism, right? If we just have new technologies, this is going to make the world better, these these techno-determinist ideas. And, you know, the goal of the podcast is to push back on that and to say that a lot of these technologies are having really negative impacts on the world and our society. And, you know, we should be okay with questioning them and with saying if a technology isn't serving us, isn't making society better, isn't improving quality of life for the general public, not just wealthy people in society, that we should be okay with pushing back on that. Right. And that's not, I mean, the sad thing, we, we, I worked on that since we did a, something called techno-realism in the mid-90s. We, yep. we tried. And people thought we were being anti-tech. I'm like, no, we're just evaluating the technology. What works about it? What doesn't? Do we want it or not? Can we actively choose rather than assume in that sort of Kevin Kelly-ish way, technology yeah. has its agenda. It's coming whether you like it or not. The tsunami is going to wash over you. Get with the program or get run over by it it's like no i mean i think it's okay to at least work under the the presumption that we're still in charge here no i, I completely agree with you <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and I, I and i think it's essential right if we if we want to try to have technologies that are improving the world rather than ju than just accepting everything that the industry throws at us regardless of the benefits that it provides or or you know the consequences that come of it that we do need to be able to have those conversations and make those assessments of the technologies and be able to say you know what uber at least the model that was built around it didn't work. Yeah, sure, you can order a taxi from your phone and use an app that's perfectly fine, but that doesn't mean we need to you know, accept everything else that comes around it or these AI solutions that are increasingly being pushed on us, facial, facial recognition, all this kind of stuff. Should we be accepting that? Should that be something that we you know, integrate into our society? I, uh, I'm not so sure. I know, and it's happening fast enough now, I think, for people to gauge more accurately whether something's making their lives better or not you know yeah. people are told so oh install that install this on your phone install this app and it's like wait a minute you're bringing something into the sort of the ecosystem through which i mean this is like your your spock tricorder you know at this point <laughs> this is yeah. how we move through the alien worlds you know and it's like wait a minute i'm gonna put this app into me it's like taking a new nutrient or a new drug or something. It's like, read the label. What is that? You know, may cause dizziness, internal bleeding, you know? <laughs> it's, you know, and, and to think critically about that, I mean, it's a little bit, you know, the tech won't save us and all tech is human. I mean, there's a few of us out there, you know, who are, it's not, 
It's so tricky. It's and even the Luddites weren't anti-tech, but that's a whole that's yeah. a whole other story. It's like I'm not a Luddite, but it's like no, you are a Luddite. <laughs> exactly. <and. laughs> I embrace it. You know, I, I think I think we should be happy to say that we're Luddites because, as you're saying, the Luddites weren't just destroy all technology. It was you know, is this technology serving us, making society better? In this case, it's not. So let's smash the looms because we've already sent letters to the government asking them to step in, and they won't do it. So this is all that's left to us, right? And, right. I, and I think that's a, a, you know, all technology is human, but all technology is also political. And if we ignore the politics of the technologies, I think that really leaves us worse off, right? It, it doesn't allow us to recognize the actual effects that these technologies are having. And often we're told that technologies are going to improve social problems without recognizing the politics of why those social problems exist in the first place, whether it's why we have traffic or are dependent on automobiles or anything else. And if we don't have that as part of our understanding, then the technology isn't going to solve it because you're not dealing with the core of the problem, the fundamental piece of it. I, I was I was talking like that, had a conversation like this with a Silicon Valley technologist who um, said, you know, you may want to think, rethink talking so publicly about this because when the AIs take over, they're going to see you as an enemy. <laughs> and I was like, dude, if the AIs are so smart, they'll know I was withholding how I really felt anyway. And yeah. they're still going to come after me, right? It's like, do you really think being silent now, it's like a little little late for that one but do you ever think that there's this that there's is a point of a, a weird point of no return when the ais are when if we tell every ai that we create in one way or another extract money value time energy and attention from these humans by any means necessary as much as possible and when you figure it out share it with each other so they can do it to everybody how long can we maintain autonomy when we're arming technologies this way. Yeah, I think it's a really dangerous path, right? And I think that we're slowly like headed in that direction. And that's why it's so important for us to call attention to this now. And that's not to overstate the, you know, what AIs can actually do. I don't want to make them seem like, you know, their brains and, and they're able to think like Currently, us. And yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that often gets overstated. But I think as we see these systems built into more and more aspects of life, you know, the Amazon grocery store. And so now every time we go shopping, everything's being recorded and is managed by these technologies or the desire of the smart city to place digital technologies more and more throughout the city, throughout everything that we access. And then what happens if, you know, we get flagged as, you know, not not being able to access these things. Who do we turn to in order to challenge these determinations that are made by a supposed AI or maybe it's someone who's uh, approving these things on Mechanical Turk or one of these other platforms that we often ignore and, and don't recognize how there's a lot of human labor behind these supposed AIs. And so I, I think it's really dangerous. That's why we need to be aware of it now, challenging it now so it can't move to that point. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, if it goes too far, is it going to be like... Uh, in Dune, where they where they have the the jihad early on, and people just destroy all the computers, and they have a completely different society because people get fed up. You know, maybe that's going too far. I don't think we'll destroy all the computers, but you know, at some point, people might get fed up if it goes too far. Yeah, and then we'll see. Well, if they've got the robots by then, the the cop, the whatever RoboCops, it'll be yeah. <laughs> it'll be a difficult 
a difficult war. <laughs> but we'll fight it if necessary. It's funny. It's strange bedfellows, though. You know, when I talk like that, have those kind of conversations, that's when I get the calls from Steve Bannon. It's like, oh, now you see, right? <laughs> now right. you get it. The technocrats and Obama are, you know, and Bill Gates and the nanobots and the vaccines. That's what they're doing. It's like, those. The, the thing is, those folks who believe those things, those things aren't true, but metaphorically, they're so true, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I know, that's why they absolutely, feel it. right? It's like they seize on a kernel of truth there and then just like blow it out of proportions and build a whole conspiracy theory around it, right? Right. And, and we need to remain like within the realm of reality and focus on the material consequences of things. Um, but it is interesting to see when these critiques, you know, kind of merge into the the other side of things are, are are able to be picked up on like you know i've i've made criticisms of say electric vehicle policy in in canada or whatnot and and what the government is doing here and uh justin trudeau and a lot of people on the right really don't like him and so they might you know come on board with some of my critiques and i'm like no like you're not my people you know <laughs> i know it's like yeah. is it worth being retweeted by that yeah. one well <laughs> it's like yeah but all of a sudden i've been recontextualized in this way so it's 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 an interesting thing so but i think there still is a way to channel and harness and develop that energy because they are seeing something or feeling something or intuiting whatever same thing that the people in toronto intuited about google even if they weren't exactly right it was like ah, this isn't quite fostering the human pro-social civic reality that i would that me and my grandma you know would like to would like to live in absolutely oh and gosh. i think a lot of that is there like i think people do have inherent reactions to things i i do think that the right is very effective because they do have so much media and and so much resources in order to seize on some of these things and completely you know shift them to a different political topic or or you know make them believe that because something that people believe is is wrong exists that you know it's related to something else that you know actually benefits a completely different group of people and not not themselves like you know if you see people who are on the right when Bernie Sanders used to go around and talk about you know, Medicare for all people used to be really on board with that. Or if you look at Florida where, you know, they vote for Ron DeSantis, but also wrote, vote for a $15 minimum wage. Like it's not that people are just in one box, right? People are right. nuanced. People have different ideas. And so, yeah, like, you know, not everyone is lost just because they voted for Trump or something like that necessarily. Right. Right. And they're, 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 exactly. You know, and that's, I sometimes felt like I was a, a MAGA whisperer for a while because I would see Trump or someone speak and go, no, but yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's some there, there. I understand what it's like to not want to have to learn how to make solar panels and things when you've been digging coal up for all these years and you don't quite understand what this is going to do for you and your town. And, uh, and yeah. I, I, I get it. I get it when, when, when they're there. It's just a matter of then saying, you guys are right. You know, and you'd be even more right if you <laughs> expressed yeah, like, it like this. Especially yeah. when you look at these kind of, you know, what the transition presented to a lot of these people is, right? It's not transition into a new industry or have new jobs that you can move to, but rather you lose your job and your whole town loses its economic base. And, you know, you're in post-industrial community that really has 
nothing all of a sudden, right? It, it was really interesting to me. I read about a union, a, a fossil fuel workers union that existed in the prairies in Canada back in the 70s or 80s. And they like put together this whole plan for what their jobs would be, what their industry would be when they transitioned away from fossil fuels and like to have that kind of you know, to have a plan for how that would work, what that would mean for their jobs, how they could develop new industries around it. And of course, the union was was busted because you don't want uh, workers to have that kind of power. But, it, you know, it, it was interesting to me because you can see that workers are able to think up these things, are able to put together these plans for what their future should be. But when they're denied that kind of power over that decision making and when there's a belief, which I think is fair among a lot of people, that the government isn't going to come and help them when they when they hit hard times because of the past several decades of government policy that you can see how they instead turn to these more reactionary ideas and don't believe that the support and and that the power can be there to actually help them. Right. But luckily there, we still do live in neighborhoods with people that we can just look at and talk to and reach out to and not worry about quite who they voted for or what they think about guns. And the more this, 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 in some cases, common ground, but even just ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have to agree. Just where I've got ground, we will we will stand a chance. I mean, it's it I always feel like it's easier for you in Canada, but it's it's not. You guys had all the the trucker things. You got just as much crazy going on there. Yeah, um, we have a we lot of here. divisions yeah. too. It's just up yeah. in Canada, I feel like we tend to say or, or a lot of people tend to think, oh, we're not as bad as the United States, so like everything is okay. Meanwhile, like the healthcare system is collapsing. You know, we have the growing movement of anti-vaxxers in the far right here. Like there's a lot of things that are not going so well up here. And, you know, we can't ignore them just because maybe the United States has some has some big problems as well. And I think no, that we're gonna serves be taking us really over soon poorly. enough. We're, yeah. we're- <laughs> Lining up the tanks at the border because <laughs> we need your water, your energy, yeah. your climate. Don't worry. You're the next Ukraine. Russia to Ukraine is the is the test case for America <laughs> taking over uh, uh, Ottawa. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wherever you're. Where Let's do you keep your not, wheat? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we'll buy it. We'll use it. We'll use economic yeah, you warfare. Like Don't Greenland. Worry. You'll be fine. You'll be free. As yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> Free of socialized well, healthcare. Why would we want that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh no. Well, thanks so much for being on Team Human. I I really want to. I want to send you my book too. I want to get on your show. Um, I'm going to pitch. I'm going to pitch myself. Fantastic to talk with you, Douglas. I really appreciated the conversation, and I, I look forward to reading your book too. Oh, thanks. And I appreciate it. I appreciate your book. Everyone should get it. Road to Nowhere. It will take you somewhere. So thank <laughs> you. And thanks for being on Team Human. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Road to Nowhere and the host of Tech Won't Save Us, Paris Marx. You can find out more about him at parismarks.com or come to teamhuman.fm and click on the links from this episode. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
hands up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.